Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG. Choose from plug-in, hybrid, or all-electric. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper. Now, on today's edition, we're joined by a communications specialist, somebody upon whom many politicians and business people have relied over the decades. And when you hear her, you'll understand why. She also has a very interesting backstory as an actress and as a novelist and a writer of nonfiction as well. The circumstances in which she came to marry her husband are also fascinating because when she met him and fell in love with him, he was a priest in the Catholic Church. Indeed, her late husband, Tom, is somebody we speak about at length in this interview. And it's quite clear just how much Terry Prone misses Tom in the years since he died. We'll get to that a little bit later in the podcast, but there's also great stories about Charlie High taking money and various other characters who she's come across over the years. So it's a little bit longer maybe than usual, this episode of Magnified with Matt Cooper, but I think you're going to enjoy it. Terry Prone, thank you so much for joining me at my kitchen table. Just wonder how to describe you. Now, there are probably some people out there who might have the negative connotation of spin doctor. How do you reply and respond to being called a spin doctor? Drives me nuts. Because a spin doctor is a thing that the Americans developed so that when, say, uh, presidential candidates appeared on television, uh, the spin doctor would go out afterwards to radio and television programmes explaining how their candidate was really fantastic and good. I have never done any of that stuff. Uh, what, what we started doing was media training. Um, what, what actually happened was that the Catholic Church in the 60s realised, you know, something, television is going to matter. And a guy called Father Joe Dunn here persuaded the hierarchy to send him on a year-long media skills course in the United States. And then he came back and he set up the Catholic Communication Centre and he hired a television presenter named Bunny Carr to, to run it. And it was the first time anybody in Ireland had looked at training people to survive television. The political parties hadn't done it, nobody had done it. And later on, Bunny Carr set up his own place, and that's where I got involved. But spin doctoring, I've never done and wouldn't do. Survive television? What do you mean by surviving television? In the beginning, uh, Bunny Carr used to present... I can't remember the name of it, but some programme with Irish politicians. And he said that afterwards they would go to Madigan's pub and invariably one of the politicians would give Bunny a nudge and say, didn't get much out of me now, did you? And it drove Bunny nuts because that was the objective, not to reveal anything, to be just on television but not contributing anything. And Bunny thought this was such a criminal waste of airtime and such an insult to people who were paying their TV licences that he said, no, no, we, we need to teach 
politicians how to use television, but their objective was how to survive it. But again, I come back to survive because the perception might be that in those days, television interviews were almost deferential towards politicians. They certainly weren't combative in the way that some broadcasters now seem to believe that every political interview needs to be. You make a fine point. First of all, the interviews on programmes, the ones that preceded primetime, with people like Dr. Brian Farrell, who was an academic, but he was also a superb television interviewer, it, their interviews tended to be forensic rather than aggressive. And because the medium was so new, it was desperately frightening, even if there wasn't the constant gotcha urge that there is now. And politicians were frightened that they would look fat, they would look uh, country, they would be patronised by Dublin Four-type interviewers. There was a rake of things that they were afraid of. And the end result of that was that they never came prepared to offer anything, prepared to be interesting, so that even though they didn't face the kind of constant, interruptive, aggressive interviewing that is common nowadays on radio and television, they still didn't have the skills to actually be interesting. What about being truthful? Because again, the perception may be that uh, politicians are trained to be not truthful in their responses to questions, to be deliberately evasive, and that's what they're trained to do. That depends on who's training them. Um, we have always looked at the kind of training that relies on giving people words to get around the truth or teaches them superficial things like smile at the end of your sentence. That sort of stuff we regard as spurious. The, the old biblical thing was the truth will set you free. And the truth has marvellous values attached to it because first of all the truth tends to come with stories attached the truth tends to be easy to illustrate the truth is easy to remember and if you if you get a politician early enough and focus them always on telling the truth they just become better communicators they become better on radio and television. But how many of them are fearful of being truthful? Because for two reasons that I can think of, and the reason I ask this is because I found many times politicians to be far more interesting off air than they are on air, but that they are fearful of the consequences within their own political parties of saying something that is out of line with the agreed line. And they're also now incredibly fearful of the reaction on social media. So how do you get around that? Social media has changed everything. The, the thing about being trolled on social media is that when you read the bad stuff about yourself, you're convinced that everybody else in Ireland is reading it as well. And secondly, that they believe it. Because the terrible thing is that you believe it when you read it about yourself. You actually think, I, I must be this, this terrible person. It has created an added layer of fearfulness. But 
the people who will survive social and mainstream media are the ones who who want to do something, who want to improve something, who go into politics to achieve something. And there's always a supply of them, and they tend to be good communicators. But what about my point as to the fact that there are politicians who are far more interesting and engaging off-air than they are on-air? Well, you make an interesting communications point, because one of the things that we find when we're training, put politicians aside for a minute, when we're training, say, business people or people who are going to make a big presentation or a speech or whatever they'll do their presentation or make the speech and then you'll rehearse them with questions. And the person who takes the questions is not the same person as the person making the speech. They're much more accessible, interesting, they think, they respond. There is something about the structure of the communication that makes people more interesting when they are directly... Um, encountering a questioner from the audience. Um, and I think that's the same with politicians. They feel that they can relax with you as soon as the interview is over, but not during it because... Do you remember Janet, what's her name, Malcolm, the professor in America who said that all journalists start out to interview somebody, pretending to that somebody that they are innocent of intent and friendly in purpose and every interviewee starts out thinking this is the time that I can be authentic and fearless and she maintained that it was a double whammy if you like that the journalist is always going to be out to get you in the sense that they don't want you to be dull, to be boring, to be doing PR for yourself. And they hope, oh my God, I get a news line out of this. To reverse it, what should I make of politicians who are far more interesting during the interview than they are off air? <laughs> that, that actually is riveting because... I remember at one stage preparing a guy for a prime time or the equivalent and watching him and thinking, he's not actually as good as he should have been. And I rang him up and said, what happened to you? And he said, well, the interview wasn't as exciting as the interview in your studio. And I thought, whoa, we need to be very careful about that. We need to be careful of the vanity that says we can do a tougher interview than Matt Cooper can. Because sometimes that's not good preparation. That's just showbiz. That's just having a good time. Um, and sorry, I've forgotten what you asked me. Well, I suppose the question was about people who perform better than they actually are off air. So should I be distrustful of somebody who suddenly sort of comes alive and gives a performance when they're supposed to be truthful? Hold on a second. There's a whole load of things in there. Giving a performance does not necessarily mean you're, you're not truthful. An actor gives a performance, but it's a profoundly truthful thing. 
if you're on a stage in front of 800 people and you have to make those people understand something and grieve for something and weep for something, you're not doing something false. You're doing something that in human terms is hugely true. That's the first thing. The second thing is, again, moving away from politicians, if the, one of the best broadcasters, if not the definitive Irish broadcaster, Gay Byrne, if you met Gay Byrne privately, if you were a, a friend of Gay Byrne, he wasn't interesting. He was interesting in the sense that he would read books and he would do, but he wasn't charismatic or exciting or any of the things that he was on television. He came alive to a degree when the red light came on, the adrenaline started to flow. He was bigger, more exciting, more charismatic. It's a function of a television studio. If you're a really good communicator, you just get bigger and better in a television studio than you are over your kitchen table. Is being a good communicator something that is natural to you, something that you actually have to have, or can you be trained to be one? This is where me and my son tend to disagree, because I really believe that everybody can be trained to be great. I think going back to the theatre, I remember when I was um, a young actress in the Abbey, in order to survive, they gave you the sort of tasks that nobody wanted, like prompting. So you sat in the wings and you had a little light focused on the script and you followed that script slavishly for fear that an actor on stage would lose their lines and dry up. And I'm there one night watching what may be the worst play ever written. Um, Lady Gregory had her points, but Dervigilla wasn't on, on the high side. Um, And the last scene in this play about an Irish queen um, has the actress, who was Joan O'Hara in this case, on the stage, all on her own, darkness and a spotlight, and looking back at her tragic life. And I'm watching Joan O'Hara, and real tears are flowing down her face. And I'm thinking, Jesus, will I ever be able to produce real tears every night in a play? And another actor named Ray McAnally came up behind me, saw what I was doing, took my shoulders and turned me slightly so that I was looking at the audience. And he whispered in my ear, are they crying? And I looked and they actually weren't. They weren't, they were doing exactly what I was doing, which was admiring her capacity to cry, but it moved them not. And that was a profound lesson for me in communication. It doesn't matter what you think or feel. All that matters is the understanding or the emotional difference you make to an audience. And it can be an audience of one or an audience of hundreds of thousands. And an awful lot of what passes for communications training misses that point. It starts with, oh, let's be punchy or uh, let's pull this emotional string. 
But it should always start with the person or the people that you're talking to and what they know about this subject and what they feel about it currently and what they do and work out what what must I tell these people that will change what they know and feel and do. Do you ever regret not giving up your career as an actor? No, my whole life has been giving up stuff. I I was uh, a visual artist, you know, the Caltex competition, Texaco and all those, won all of those prizes. And a, a fantastic artist named Harry Kernoff. Have you, this? you know Harry Kernoff. Um, the guy, he actually invented uh, Dr. Spock's, Mr. Spock's ears in... Sorry, let me go back a bit. Okay. Harry Kerner was this Jewish guy. Jews have been most important in, in my life and still are because my company now works out of the old synagogue on the Adelaide Road. Harry Kerner was this fantastic artist in the 40s and 50s in Dublin. And he did this gorgeous painting of two owl fellas, two heavy drinking owl fellas, in front of a wall that was all covered with the names of pubs at the time. And it was called Bird Never Flew on One Wing. And the fella in the front had pointy ears. Now, nobody paid any attention to the pointy ears, except the painting was in, I think, the Bailey. And an American designer who was at the time, beginning to work out how to give the look to Star Trek, uh, spotted it and said, ha, going to give Mr. Spock those ears. Sorry, long story as to why Mr. Spock has pointy ears. But Harry Kernoff judged an art competition that I did, entered when I was, I think, 14, 15, and gave me the first prize. And then talked to my parents about me going into his studio as soon as I left school because he believed I had great talent. And I never considered it for a moment because I knew how little talent I had. And similarly with acting, I was a fabulous actor, but I couldn't control my weight. And you can't play Juliet if you're 16 stone. And that meant that for 30 years, I was going to be always making myself up as an owl one. And so when I got the hint from the artistic director of the Abbey that I might have a problem, I just said, OK, where, where can you go that they don't see you? And so I went into radio. And any of the relinquishing always led to something more interesting and good. Okay, there's a number of things come out of that. One very practical approach that you may have taken, uh, turning a negative into a positive. But in some respects, I'm surprised that you could say you gave up when clearly you would have been able to if you had continued on your path through the determination and intelligence that you have to have succeeded. In the theatre or in... In anything I suspect that you wanted to do, Terry. No. You can't will yourself into being a visual artist. I knew just how derivative my stuff was. I could fool other people, but you can't 
you can't create an artistic life where you're trying to persuade other people that you're more creative than you are. Similarly, when I look back on the theatre, it's not that I'm doing Pollyanna on it. It's, I remember sitting for a bloody hours during rehearsals. I remember the tedium that had the payoff of two hours when the curtain went up. And I got very lucky. I entered a business in an area and a series of things like writing that where I was in total charge of my own time and also where I didn't have to be social. What do you mean where you didn't have to be social? I don't go to parties. I don't go to receptions. I People individually are okay, but in groups, nah. People individually are okay, but in groups, nah. Explain that to me. Well, if you're social as you are, you like going out with your wife or with friends and having drinks and uh, going on to somewhere else and chats and I would always feel, do you know something? The people I meet in books are much more interesting than the people I meet in real life. And so why would I bother? And, And also, at some stage early on when we were married, we were going out somewhere. There were two occasions that I would tell you about. One was when we were going out somewhere and I was doing the thing of getting into a dress, working out which dress fitted me, all of that sort of stuff. And I was in a blind rage. And then I noticed that my husband, Tom, was leaning up against a wall, quietly sniggering at me. And I did the what thing. And he said, Tess, there's no law says that we have to go. I said, what do you mean? He said, you can take off the makeup and go to bed if you want. Nobody's going to punish us. And I said, but you want to go? He said, not particularly. But I, and I took off the dress, took off the makeup, and we never went together to any social event. He would sometimes accompany Moira Gagan Quinn because Moira Gagan Quinn's husband was down the west of Ireland and she had a lot of functions as a minister and stuff. But I never, ever went again to anything like that. What was the other... Th- oh, yes. The other thing was that I I had merciful amnesia about whenever I did go out. And I remember one Saturday evening, the phone went and I picked it up and it was Gemma Hussey, who was then Minister for Education. And how are you... I'm only great, Gemma. I'm reading this great book. Why? You're supposed to be here sitting beside the Taoiseach at dinner in my house. I had completely forgotten. And it was the most, I mean, the arrogance of forgetting that you're due to be at a dinner party with the Taoiseach of the day. But again, I was glad I didn't go. I probably would have enjoyed Garrett, but still. I would expect that if you had sat down at the dinner table, you could concentrate just on the person beside you and you would enjoy it rather than having to take part in group discussions. Maybe you've missed out over the years (laughs) by not going to dinner parties. I've done the thing of interviewing the person beside me. Not many are as interesting as Garrett would be. 
Okay. What age were you when you got married? That's a good question to which I don't know the answer. I think I was 22. You were a young woman. Yeah. No, that's, that is, by <laughs> modern standards, very young to make a decision like that. And particularly given that you were marrying a man who had recently been a priest. It may, it may have been 23. Um, and, it, well, I had three years to work it out. Because Tom said one day that he loved me and that he thought we should get married. And the odd thing was that we were in my sitting room at home and we were sitting at opposite ends of the room because we had never, he had never kissed me, touched me, hugged me, anything. And then he proposed to me and that was all good. And then he said, do you think you could come over and sit with me? And um, I went over and I sat with him and that was the closest we'd ever been. But he then applied for laicization, or as they, the Vatican put it, a reduction to the lay state. And we were waiting for it to come through and waiting for it to come through. And the waiting wasn't fun because my father was a very religious man and he disapproved of me marrying a man who had been a priest. And so he didn't talk to me for the three years. And I lived at home because of not wanting to give scandal. And I remember one Christmas, my father had put a package beside my place at the table. And when I opened it, it was a book called The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. And it was inscribed to my former daughter. Now, that sounds as if my father was was impregnably harsh, but in fact, about six weeks before we, we were married, he apologised and walked me up the island, became the best grandfather in the world. But the the years went on while Tom was living in a place called Brock House, which is just around the corner from RTE, and he was working as a freelance journalist and doing well. But the permission wasn't coming through. And eventually he rang a friend in the Vatican and said, listen, would you ever look and see what's happened, my case? Because other men who had applied at the same time were married, had children, the whole lot. And the guy rang back within an hour and he said, well, that was simple. And Tom said, how do you mean? And he said, there's nothing here. Conway, Cardinal Conway has never sent on your application. And... Tom took his car keys off the thing in the hall, walked out the door, didn't say goodbye, kissed my arse, anything to me, got into his car and drove to Araceli in Armagh, which was where Cardinal Conway was, lashed open the door, bypassed all of the secretaries and priests, and went into Conway's office, and without greeting or anything else, said, you didn't send on my request for laicization. And Conway said, no, I believed it was possible and desirable that you would change your mind. 
And Tom said, you have no right to do that. You have no right in canon law to do that. You have played with my life and the life of another person. And if my laicization doesn't come through uh, within the next six months, I'll go public with this. And lashed straight out again and drove back to Dublin. And three weeks later, the permission came through. I just want to roll back, though, because a couple of things strike me with that. First of all is your relationship with your father, and you say that thankfully six weeks before you got married, he apologised and he walked you down the aisle and he became a great-grandfather. But during that period where he wasn't speaking to you for three years, how difficult was that for you as a young adult? And then what does it also say about how much you must have loved Tom, your determination that in those circumstances you were sticking to your guns and you were waiting for him to be laicized and you would get married to him? It was difficult. It was difficult to be isolated within the unit that's supposed to be your refuge, do you know? Um, but I have to be honest and say that the euphoria of being loved by this man outweighed everything. And if Tom had said, okay, we need to go to Australia, which was a suggestion made by several people, um, because the belief was we'd never make a living in Dublin, that the church was so powerful that we would be prevented from make, making a living. Um, now, I would have had reservations about Australia. I mean, Sheila's and beer and that accent, yeah. But um, nonetheless, there was, there is, I think it, when you are in love, as totally as I was, nothing, nothing matters, only the, the sense of the future that you're going to have. And the... The thing that when you see the person that you love walking towards you, there's this lurch of your heart, that a physical reaction, that it, it just doesn't happen in any other circumstance. So it was manageable. Terry, a couple of times since Tom passed, I have asked you how you were and you didn't want to talk about him. I mean... How are you now, and can you talk about him now with the passage of time? I'll tell you anything you want to know about the life of the most interesting human being I ever met. But how should we remember him? How do you remember him? Oh, he was, he was so funny and so... Um, he was incredibly well-educated because he was the first Catholic priest sent to Queen's University, Belfast, uh, where he studied sociology. He was a classic scholar. He, you know, I re at one stage we got lost when we had a holiday in Malta and he managed to get directions by accosting an old parish priest and discussing directions in Latin with the, the parish priest. Um, he was... I always had the sense, not the sense, the reality that he was looking out for me. When I was driving anywhere, he would, he would tell, once I had a mobile phone, he would telephone me two or three times every day. Where was I? What was I? And that sense of being looked out for is just such a blessing. 
He was also the most generous human being I have ever met. The minute he got money, for any reason, he started looking for somebody else to give it to. You didn't mention he was a good Gaelic footballer too, <laughs> but that passed over your head, didn't it? He was a brilliant sportsman. There was nothing that he, he didn't play and play well. He was a tennis champion in the north. He played football. He even played hurling as well. And he became a scratch golfer. Scratch golfer. Okay. How have you managed without him? There is... There is nothing. It's it's like having the centre of your life torn away and you keep thinking, this will get easier, this will get more manageable and I just am inadequate when it comes to managing it. Um, you know, he was the, the funniest, most interesting human being I have ever met. Therefore... The world seems kind of dull without him. But you move on and you, thank God, I work in a fascinating area and I work with people that I love. I'm sorry if that sounded maybe even a little bit cold the way I asked that, how you've managed without him. But I I know how much you love Tom and how important he was to you. So sorry if that in any way upset you. But you do have your son, Anton. And you have your grandchildren as well. So you do have plenty of things that keep you incredibly engaged and curious. I mean, you still are incredibly curious about the world, aren't you? Oh, yeah. And I think that going back to my father, the great service that my father did was he used to read to me when I was a kid every single night except when he worked for the Dublin Gas Company, which was the worst company in the history of corporate Ireland, but has now died, understandably. And um, they had this thing called reconciliation that happened once a quarter. It was something to do with accountancy. But on those nights, he had to stay and do overtime. And he was reading Black Beauty to me, and when reconciliation happened. And I was oh, distraught because we'd reached a really interesting place in the book. And I had the book open in front of me and I was looking at it. And suddenly it began to read itself to me. Now, I didn't know all the words, but I knew enough to work out where the story was going. So when the following night when he started, I said, I, I went on to the... And he said, hang on a second. And he asked me what had happened on those pages. And he said, oh, now you can read yourself. And the feeling was of total panic because I thought he's not going to continue. Now I'm stuck. I have to do it for myself. But in fact, he had given me the the most important gift that anybody has ever given me. Once you can read, you never have to be lonely again. You're always finding fascinating 
new things about people. I mean, I was in the States Sorry, recently. about fictional people who you seem to prefer to real people. <laughs> no, um, non-fictional people too. I mean, the I've just finished a book by a fabulous uh, American journalist called Ken Auletta. And he, he, I have several of his earlier books. He wrote about, um, I've got a blank. The, do you know the company that went down uh, very badly in the United States and was revealed to have been crooked? That could be one of a number, was it? It begins en- with an N. Was it Enron? Enron. Yeah. Um, Which starts with an E. But it anyway. starts with an E, this is true. Anyway, um, he wrote about them. He wrote about, uh, 30 years ago, he wrote about the decline of the American television networks. But he has produced this beautiful, fabulous book. And it's about Harvey Weinstein. And one of the things that he has discovered and writes about early on is that when Harvey Weinstein was in high school, his class fell in love with the work of Porrick Cullum, the Irish poet. And he was then in his 90s. He was living in New York. Harvey Weinstein actually managed to reach Porrick Cullum and persuade him to come to the high school to read his poetry to them. Of somebody who was so crudely violent, having that level of sense, it's just fascinating. I love to read about real people who are observed in that kind of nuanced way. How's Geraldine Desmond and Pamela Rowan these days? (laughs) They are pseudonyms. I've had 11 pseudonyms and, um, oh, they're always working on something. Okay. Why, as an author, have you, you've written something like 30 books at this stage between fiction and nonfiction. Why did you hide behind pseudonyms? The... The pseudonyms actually started when I was writing for Mary Kenny, who was the women's editor of the Irish press at a time when there were things like women's editors. And I wanted to write about the environment. Now, this was 40 years ago, and the environment was the coming thing. And I realised nobody's going to publish anything by a woman on the environment. And so... I started, James Hillary was the environmental guy. Similarly, there was an editor of... Sorry, you were James Hillary, were you? I was, yeah. James Hillary is H- made... Hillary my, being your sister's Hillary name. being my sister and James being her husband. Um, all of the names had some connection like that. Then there was... Who was the very famous editor of the Irish Independent... Vinnie Doyle? Yes. 
Vinnie Doyle, before he became editor of the Irish Independent, became editor of the Evening Herald. And at the time, I was doing two columns a week, very happily. And I got hold into Vinnie Doyle, and he started lecturing me on what he wanted, which actually wasn't possible in a country as small as Ireland. You'd, you'd survive about six months. He wanted me to be completely bitchy about famous people twice a week. We don't have enough famous people. So I'm listening to all of this, and there's guys, because he was a guy guy, was Vinnie Doyle. There were guys coming in all excited about various things, and he was presiding over all of this excitement. And I thought, you know stuff this and I told him what to do with his two columns and I walked out and I'm going home on the bus and I'm thinking that mm, that wasn't a strategic move this I can't afford to be without those two columns so what I did was I was always an early adopter uh, technologically so I had what at the time was such new technology um a daisy wheel uh, word processor you could pull the daisy wheel off it and put up a different font so I changed the font changed the layout and wrote two columns under another name and sent them to Vinnie Doyle from my sister's address and I swear to god he paid me more money to be not me than he had paid me to be me now, you couldn't do that anymore because there's always little photographs of the people beside the columns. But I wrote... So, so under- did he ever find out about his deception? Never. And it, it went on for about 18 months. It was grand. But at, at one stage, the lovely man, Mr O'Neill, who lived next door to us, um, had a fight with the postman because the postman asked him if a commune lived next door. Because Tom had a few pseudonyms and I had 11 pseudonyms. So there was always correspondence coming in to all of these different names. And Mr O'Neill was very offended that he would think there was a commune there. And what type of fiction have you written? I've written uh, what Graham Greene used to call entertainment fiction, which is uh, under a different name. And I have written more literary fiction. Plus, uh, where I started was with short stories. I won the Francis McManus Award for one of them. Oddly, the short stories also I started doing under a false name because when I was working for Mary Kenny, upstairs was the office of David Marcus. David Marcus was the Jewish literary editor of the paper and he was just the doyen of the short story he probably single-handedly positioned Ireland as the leading producer of great short stories at the time and he did this thing called new Irish writing and I submitted stories to him under a false name and again from my sister's address and they, they were accepted and they appeared under the false name, which was grand until Kate Cruz O'Brien, my editor, said, have you published anything in fiction? I said, yes, yeah, several short stories. Where? 
And I explained. And she said, well, once she read them, she said, we're going to have to include these in the collection. So you better go tell David Marcus that you lied to him. And I went to David Marcus and stood in front of him like I had been sent to the headmistress, you know, and told him. And I I thought he would never stop laughing. He thought it was the funniest thing ever. And when he eventually did stop laughing, he said, I'll do you a blurb for the collection. He was that kind of wholly generous man. Do you still write? Oh, yes. Never mind what at the moment. Well, obviously, I have a column in the Irish Examiner. and no, I, write... I don't mean newspaper writing. Do you still write fiction? Yes, I do. Never mind when it'll appear or where. <laughs> but do you have ambitions for it? I mean, do you want your fiction to reach a large number? Do you want literary acclaim? I've had both of those in that some of my novels were published internationally and were big bestsellers and, thank God, made a lot of money for me. Um, And they were very well received critically. I'm done with that. I think that every writer has this thing that ultimately they write for themselves and you, you don't think of critical acclaim when you're thinking about a theme or a character or something that you want to pursue. Did you give it enough time, given how much you love it, given that you have to develop or give a lot of time to car communications first and then the communications clinic subsequently? Probably not, but I did, did always, because Tom used to present it says in the papers in RTE, I got into the habit of getting up when he was getting up, which was at four in the morning. So you've got a good stretch of time, you know, between four and nine. And I did most of my writing then. And because I didn't have a social life, that that worked (laughs) out well. Um, But the thing of not giving it enough time, Christopher Buckley Jr., the guy who debated Norman Mailer on television, uh, an absolute right-winger, but a fascinating writer, he um, at some stage looked back over the columns that he had written. He he wrote columns every week for a, a magazine he published. And he said that the ones that he wrote under pressure and against a deadline with not enough speed were qualitatively no different from the ones where he had plenty of time. I think sometimes we kid ourselves that if we could go to a writer's resort or wherever and take our time at it, that we might do better. I suspect I'd just be mitching off doing other things. I asked you at the outset of this interview how you felt about being described as a spin doctor and I suppose I've been deliberately provocative in that because I know that you're far, far, your services you provide to clients are far more than that. But I was fascinated to look at the communications clinic website, which... Are you grimace? I have to tell anyone listening that you immediately grimaced as if you don't know what might be on the website. And it says you're a crisis management consultant, which I think is probably a very good description for things like blackmail, 
terror threats, industrial accidents and medical scandals. Blackmail and terror threats? Yep. Um, uh, I can think of a couple of cases, one where a politician was being blackmailed um, and where there was nowhere else that they could go to get advice on what to do. The other thing is large organisations which are threatened with, you know, we will cause an emission, we'll cause an explosion. And you would often find yourself working alongside the Gardaí in that situation. Doing what? What sort of advice can you offer in a situation like that that will be of use? The... The first thing in any situation is to look at, okay, who's going to be affected? If you have a plant which is threatened in some way, then you're looking immediately, concentric circles around that plant. Okay, how near is the nearest school? How near is the nearest village? Who's endangered by this? Who needs to be notified? Who needs to... All of those sort of things. Um, and so you're, you're moving people away from what I think is almost a reflex, which is we have to put out a statement. No, you don't have to put out a statement. Similarly, when I remember one particular politician who was being blackmailed, politician hadn't done anything wrong. It was just that somebody had worked out he would be mortified if this little bit of private information made it into the public domain. And so he had decided, I'm out of here. I'm just not staying one more day in politics, but I need to leave in a way that doesn't attract attention to what I'm doing, because if attention is attracted, it will be read as confirming that I did something wrong. So it's that kind of advice, generally in crises. I'm asking why the communications people weren't brought in. You mentioned Enron earlier. The Enron guy, when the shit hit the fan, said, this is a communications issue, get me my PR people. That was actually a crookedness issue. No, it it, it was a massive (laughs) financial fraud, fraud, yeah. But that tends to be the way communications people are treated right across the board, public sector, private sector. They are the people who are brought in at the last minute and thrown something and told, make the public like that. And very often, if they had been asked earlier you wouldn't have the problem at all well would you tell a client be it a political party an individual politician a businessman or a company no we will not do that for you oh yes would you resign a particular position if they tried you have um there's a number of things first of all that was how i accidentally brought down charlie hawhey because uh, Sean Doherty came to us, uh, sent by Brian Lenehan Sr. And I had to deal with him because my husband was, I don't know where he was, but he was doing something else. And 
I sat down with Darty and his wife, and Darty had said something on a television programme which had landed him in trouble. Nighthawks. Nighthawks, exactly. Which a lot of people felt he had done deliberately, that it was part of a plot to bring down Charlie Eye, that he was acting on behalf of Albert Reynolds and Porrick Flynn and the Country and Western Alliance, to whom a lot of people thought your husband Tom was very close. He was extremely close to Charlie McCreevy, uh, Gagan Quinn, a few of them, definitely. But what, what happened was that Doherty came with his wife and sat down and said to me that he had said this thing on Nighthawks and it was causing enormous ructions and Brian Lenahan had told him to come to us and that we would give him a formula of words to rescue him. And I'm looking at this and I said, hang on, you mean a formula of words to deny what you said earlier? Yeah. A a formula of words that would be... I said, hang on, was what you said on Nighthawks the truth? Yeah. So you're asking us to come up with a formula of words that will effectively tell a lie? Yeah. And I I rise up um, to my full height and indicated that he and his wife could leave the building right then because that was the one thing we never did, was assist anybody, not just to tell a lie, but to fudge the truth. And his wife simply said, he's going to tell the truth. You're going to tell the truth. You've been too long at this. And so I sat down again and he began to weep and then the whole story came out and the end result was that that night uh, it blew. But going to your point about the country and Western Alliance, I went home after all this and arranging a press conference because Orchie was on strike at the time. So I figured, okay, if this press conference... They'll send cameras because management was still running the station, but they won't be able to edit it. So it'll go out as scripted. Fine. So I was pretty tired at this stage, headed home, and Tom immediately started organising cups of tea and said, so what happened? And I said, thanks a bunch for delivering that to me. And he explained that he couldn't do it because of something else. And he said, but tell us what happened. So I told him, and he went very still. And he said, Tess, this is going to bring Hawhey down. And I said, ah, for God's sake, Tom. I mean, we've had it so often. This is going to bring Hawhey. Hawhey will never survive, oh, et cetera, et cetera. And Tom said, Tess, trust me, this is going to bring Hawhey down. And he said, I need to ring Albert. And... He rang Albert, and I was wandering around, making my own cup of tea at that stage, and I could hear him having a ferocious ding-dong with Albert Reynolds, and eventually saying, there is nothing that can be done about it right now, and banging down the phone. And then he sat there for a long time looking at space, and I said, what the hell was that about? And he said, there's something going on that I don't know about. Albert was furious at the possibility of this going out tonight and he wanted me to stop it. 
And none of that made any sense to either of us at the time. The thing went out the following day, um, how he resigned. But what we found out later was that Dr John O'Connell had got a written promise from Charlie Hawhey that he would resign on a particular day because of something that John had discovered that Hawhey had done that he would never have wanted made public. And so when Albert heard that this was happening, he was rigid with terror that it would wreck the plan that he actually had in secret with John O'Connell. Did you ever find out what it was that John O'Connell knew about Ahi? Yes. What was it? John was a great fundraiser. And when Brian Lenahan Sr. became very ill, he tapped a whole load of his wealthy friends. for money. And classically John, because John was a hero worshipper. And at that stage, his hero was Charlie Hawhey. And so he actually went to Charlie Hawhey's office with a briefcase filled with actual money to show him. And while he was there, a phone call came through from Margaret Thatcher and John was ushered into a, an anteroom. And when he came back, uh, congratulated by Hoy, etc., took the briefcase, went home. Several batches of the money were missing. Um, something like 20,000 was missing. And John was turned into an undying enemy. Of, that was just... He couldn't, all of the other stuff about Hawhey, he could excuse or deny or put soft sugar around. He couldn't cope with that. I now have an image of Charles Hawhey conducting a telephone conversation with Margaret Thatcher while at the same time opening a suitcase that had been left behind in the office, rifling it, taking out wads of cash, stuffing it in his pocket, closing the suitcase, finishing the conversation with Margaret Thatcher, bringing your man back in and giving John O'Connell his suitcase light of about 20 grand. It wouldn't, let's be honest, be the strangest thing that Mr. Hawhey did. No, far from it, actually, but it's still a great image. Uh, Your memory... Uh, I was fascinated recently, you wrote about the condition aphasia, which uh, Bruce Willis, the actor, has had to retire from acting because of. That affected you for a while after a serious car crash. How many years ago now was it since the car crash that very nearly killed you? 40. Um, And the aphasia, it it was the time of, of the beginning of mobile phones, And that was how Tom worked out that something was wrong because I would have been ringing him on the mobile phone. So we knew that 
I was physically damaged. Everything except my right arm was broken. But I didn't realize how neurologically I was damaged until I began to try to train far too early. I was still in a wheelchair. And I would get this thing. It was like a windscreen wiper of a car. And suddenly I'd be looking at somebody that I was working with thinking, who the hell are you and what are we actually talking about here? And I realized, oh, I need more testing to find out. And they said, yeah, you have aphasia. And it will usually take the form of not being able to access a particular word or a bit like when I was trying to find Enron earlier. But people say to you, oh, but that can happen to anybody. No, it can't. It never happened to me before. And it's it's a constant. I mean... I sometimes find myself talking to my only sister, my only sister, and thinking, what's your name now? And I I then work out, okay, you have an unusual name, and I start sort of trying names on her in my head, like Penelope or Hermione. Now, her name is Hillary. I'm never going to reach it. But that happens. Now, Hillary, it doesn't matter with. But I... For quite a while, I would call Anton by a girl's name, which is really not what a teenager needs from his mother. Um, And it's a constant, constant dread that in the middle of a meeting or a recorded exercise or a radio programme that it'll happen and I won't be able to scrabble my way out of it. You came very close to dying at that time, but you recovered and you've had various injuries. Your Irish Examiner column, I think, over the years has almost been a litany of the various injuries. Uh, Recently broken ribs during lockdown as well. You fell and you fractured your arm. Uh, And you write very entertainingly about all of these things. Um, But given how close you were to death, how has that then impacted the rest of your life when you continue to live? And it doesn't. I mean, when people say, oh, it changed me completely, I look at them and think, my arse, it did. Um, the routine, the regular, the quotidian uh, reasserts itself. And in no time at all, you're back to doing what you did before, which is merciful because you don't want to be looking down the double barrel of death all the time. But you did become addicted to cosmetic surgery. You've written about that, haven't you? Oh, yeah, but that was for a really good reason. Oh, no, and I'm not, I'm not being in any way critical. I'm not saying you were an early Kardashian or anything like that. It was for medical reasons. Yeah, but then it progressed to pure vanity reasons. Um, my, my face was grievously damaged in the car crash. And I, this is why I never look at photographs of myself or, or video or anything like that, because... My face doesn't work the way it did. It's just at a different angle and stuff. Um, And I thought that uh, a facelift with cheek implants to balance up the bits that were missing would be a good idea. It was a great idea. It was a great idea. And then I realised, oh, there's surgeons that can do stuff to you that... You'd have to be 
doing three hours of exercise every day to achieve. And so I tried other things and I had laser surgery on my eyes, which is a great move, all that sort of thing. And it has been the best fun. The best fun? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, because you, you see results immediately. And, and people say to you, um, you were looking very tired. <laughs> now, it does remind me somewhat of, do you remember the Cary Grant thing where he said that when people tell you how young you look, it's because they're thinking how old you are. <laughs> I've never asked, and we're going to finish maybe, and I could speak to you for hours, Terry, and I've had the good fortune of having spoken to you for hours in the past, and I will say you've been a terrific friend to me over the years on many occasions for which I'll always be grateful. But I want to talk to you a little bit about religion. I've never asked any guest on Magnified about religion, but the reason I'm asking you about it is because of the fact that Tom had been a priest in the Catholic Church. And given that he had such a difficult disengagement from being a priest, and given that you were brought up, obviously, in a very Catholic household, and it was very important to your father, who was scandalised by what you were doing, what about your own relationship with the Catholic Church? What is it like now? Doesn't really exist. I mean, I do work for uh, Catholic Church organisations. For example, I'm just back from Rome where I was doing some work with the Jesuit Refugee Service. Um, and I've done that down the years. They're a fabulous organisation. Um, but Tom always believed that priesthood didn't end, that you had to continue all of the commitments to people and to paying attention to people that he had exemplified as a priest. And he, he, he said that marriage had to be a contest of generosities. And it was. He also... I'm sorry, you didn't ask me about him, but let me get to what you asked me. He also was very strong on the need for unconditional love. He said that in Ireland, very often, love was conditional. If you do this, then I love you. If you weren't that, I would love you more. And I tried to learn from him the thing of unconditional love. And down the years, that was great. And then when he wasn't well, not physically well, he was always mentally the full children, um, in the three years before he died, at some stage, I know what brought it up, I said to him, Tom, do you believe in anything? And he smiled at me and he said, Tess, I believe in you and I believe in Anton. And that was it. And I realized, yep, same with me. And that's not a good place to be because it means there is, there's no future. There's no point at which you meet again the person that you loved. Um, all of the research says that uh, losing somebody is made 
easier to survive if you have a religious belief. And it, actually, almost anything is made better if you have a religious belief. But you can't make yourself have a religious belief. So you don't believe that there's an afterlife where you will be with Tom again? No. And is that difficult for you? Of course. But Terry, you have the most magnificent memories, don't you? I mean, you had an extraordinary life with Tom. I, I had a lucky, blessed, exciting warm life I was loved by a man who was worth being loved by um, yeah the memories are good I don't want to end this podcast by having left you upset and I feel I feel quite bad now I'm starting to think wonder that maybe I'm turned into a little bit of the late gay burn the meaning of life with questions about religion and the afterlife which I hadn't intended doing in starting out so maybe just to finish on a more on a different note who are the politicians that you've worked with who impressed you the most who you think did the most for Ireland And it's funny, I ask you that while you think about it. I can think of one particular person who you've mentioned during this podcast who you said to me before you were very proud of legislation that she brought in in the 1990s. Maura, Jim? No, Maura, Maura Gagan Quinn. Quinn. Oh, Gagan Quinn is so magnificent. She and, and my husband were great friends and I was always sort of frightened of her because I think there's a, a, a thing where... Any magnificent, successful, highly competent woman is seen as being somehow hard and harsh. And realising over time that Gagan Quinn was just everything that a, a great minister should be and a great human being should be. And that this year we've been looking at maternity leave for driven by Helen McEntee's pregnancy um, Gagan Quinn when she returned from having a baby indicated to her boss who was Desi O'Malley that she needed a room to breastfeed and it was immediately organised nobody had ever thought of it before and there we have it. The batteries gave out on the recording equipment just at the very end. So you don't hear me thanking Terry Prone very much for having spent the time at my kitchen table talking in such great detail about various episodes in her life. It's one of a whole series of interviews in the Magnified with Matt Cooper series that you can access wherever it is you get your podcasts or if you want to go to the Go Loud app. And of course, we're delighted to do these in conjunction with MG. So until the next time, from me, Matt Cooper, thanks very much for having listened. Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG, the family-friendly electric range. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul. Go ahead.